0: So you're in for a treat today, Uh, right after the slide break, we are going to make some space for Dr. Jessica Godot, and I wonder what one might tell you about somebody like Dr. Jessica. I call her doctor because she earned it, and that's just tough. If you want to call her Jessica, you can call her Jessica. Um, She's a thinker, she's an academic, she's actually an Old Testament aficionado, and she may have drugged me sideways into the series on 1st and 2nd Samuel. And as we sat around and decided who's going to cover what in our ANC preaching guild. It's a very electric act, uh, sort of creative space. It was clear that no one was going to get to handle the story of Hannah, although we all wanted to, because Jessica said, ain't none of y'all brought children into this world but me. <laughs> because there's two guys. We have kids. We did our part. And then there's young, married, and single voice there. And so clearly, Jessica gets to handle the birthing of Samuel. And so we're in for that. She's a storyteller. She's a theologian. Um, she's an author. She's an author. And she wrote a book that the New York Times gave high praise to right in the middle of COVID called After the Last Border. And if you haven't bought that, you really should. Make space in your heart for Dr. Jessica Goodell.
1: What a week, you guys. (laughs) Let's get our technology going. It's not working. Just press play, yeah. Is that working? There it is. That's the most 2020 thing ever. I mean, it's fine. Are we ready? Good. Well, welcome to 2020, where nothing ever goes according to plan. Literally, the beginning of my sermon is "What a week!" So let's start there. What a week! I mean, we had some inkling of this when Sam suggested First and Second Samuel to the preaching guild, but we could never have imagined the tornadic, torturous pace of what's happening in our country right now. It seems like there are gale force, political, societal, and cultural winds flattening us every day. We could never have fully anticipated that Samuel is exactly the book we needed for this season. Ellen Davis, the theologian who most informed my thinking for the sermon, called Hannah's song that begins for Samuel a comprehensive statement about how God characteristically disturbs human power arrangements. I want that truth to be the lens through which we view these stories, It is a characteristic of God to disturb human power arrangements. This is something that we as Christians believe to be true. We who worship Emmanuel, God with us, even as we often loudly and vehemently disagree about how and when and in what way God does that disturbing. I know that many of us in the Austin New Church community come from traditions where our flavor of Christianity determined our voting block. That was true for me. Culturally, when I was growing up, many of the people in my community voted the same way. In fact, we understood that our values were the reasons behind our political decisions. But I also understood, like many who grew up in the southern Bible belt in the U.S., that politics were like a little dirty, right? A necessary evil we dealt with because we had to. I always gathered that God called Christians to be nice, and nice people knew politics should probably stay outside the church. Samuel challenges these ideas in critical ways, but not the way you may be thinking when I talk about a church being political. So if you're new to this community, you may be joining us today because you've heard that we sometimes use the word progressive. But I need you to know something from the beginning, something that's important to the church's leadership and to me personally. We are not here to move you politically toward any party. In fact, one of the very first sermons we heard when we were first visiting A&C was one in which Jason was deeply critical of partisanship. And very clear that neither political party in the U.S. has the market cornered on goodness and truth. It really matters to me that you hear me say that. Too often, we in the U.S., especially because we've gotten used to this outrageous two-party system that we have, confuse the words partisan and political. So Shane Claiborne is the writer I've often heard this saying attributed to, but it's become a popular saying I've heard a lot. Jesus was not partisan, but he was political. And I think that's true but it's also long past time that we in the church had some serious discussions about what the word political means. Samuel provides us that opportunity and it couldn't come at a better moment. So before I dig into the text, I'm going to use a chart I've used for years in my literature classes. If you know me, you know, I love charts. And this is a great way to help us understand what politics are, especially in the first three chapters of Samuel. The writer lays out the themes and values that will be upended for the rest of these books. Jason mentioned in the sermon last week and several other times that he's not super thrilled about returning to the Old Testament, and I get that. I'm a firm believer in historical research and proper exegesis, which is looking at a text within the context of its time. But I also understand the kind of academic snobbery that goes along with people casually dropping words like exegesis and assuming you can't really talk about a book until you've spent years translating each individual phrase. So that's why I'm starting with my favorite cheat sheet. This is a great way to identify the politics of the time. I'm going to ask you to bear with me for a nerdy minute while I give you some tools that will help us understand the political and cultural structures within this book. So this chart begins in a second, but first I'm going to give you a few quick facts about for Samuel for some context. The events took place when Semele was born, around 1120 BC, and they go on for a little over a century, about 110 years. Scholars place the writing of the book, whether by Samuel, Nathan, and Gad, or others, and I promise I'm not getting into the arguments about who wrote it. You're welcome. Anywhere between 931 B.C. and 722 to 21 B.C. So that means that the people hearing these stories were about 200 years removed from most of the action. First and 2 Samuel are about a time of real upheaval in the nation of Israel, when it moved from the rule of judges, interpreting the will of God, to a time when the people demanded a king, well, God remained insistent that that king abide by the covenanted relationship God had already put in place. 200 or so years later, the audience of the book also lived in a time of real political upheaval. It was the era of the divided kingdoms in which some of the most important political questions revolved around power and values and who spoke for God. This book is perfect for this moment of our own political upheaval. Despite its distance, these issues feel incredibly fresh. If you have the chance in the next few weeks, I highly suggest reading along with the Preaching Guild as we work through First and 2 Samuel. Reading this story for the original audience would be like us talking about the ongoing protests and outcries against systemic racism right now by returning to the Civil War and the political divides at the time. Actually, that's something many of us have been doing, through books and films. Seeing the roots of our issues in history helps us understand our own divisions more clearly. But we know when we're watching a movie, for example, that sometimes a little poetic or narrative license is taken. That in fact, a good story might reveal the truth of something in a way that historical facts might not. This is exactly what the authors of first and second Samuel are relying on. It's not a chronological accounting of facts, It's really more just a good story. It doesn't mean that what's in here isn't true, but that just like we accept that parts of Genesis are poetry, so we can accept that the writers are interested in a narrative to show us two very important things. First, God looks at the world differently than we sometimes expect. Second, human power arrangements or politics do not often reflect what is important to God's heart. One last quick fact. The United States does not have the same covenanted relationship with God that Israel does in the Old Testament, no matter what your Sunday school teacher told you. That mistaken belief is a core tenet of Christian nationalism. We can learn about the characteristics of God and what God values and still resist the very American urge to put ourselves in the middle of the story. Okay, first let me show you my chart and then I'm going to use it to tell you the story of the first three chapters of 1 Samuel. My chart relies on four questions I got from an essay by critic and literary historian Stephen Greenblatt. Who is constrained? Who is mobile? Who is praised? And who is blamed? By constraints and mobility, I mean who is free to move or do whatever they want. The people who have a great deal of mobility at the top of the chart have the power. The people who are constrained do not. When we say praise and blame, we mean society looks on them well, or gives them good feedback on their actions if they're praised. They're not necessarily blamed as in, this is all your fault, but blamed as in, this bad thing is because you were XYZ kind of person. So, in our country, a few things that determine your constraints and mobility and praise and blame can be the color of your skin, the type of education that you have, the passport you have, where you were born, what accent you speak with, among thousands of other qualities. Most good literature is about people who batter against these boundaries, as Greenblatt puts it, people who move in unexpected ways. So in a short story, the action usually begins when a woman walks in the room wearing the wrong outfit, or a person sits in the wrong part of the bus, or someone with power goes to a neighborhood that is beneath them. These people are blamed. When people do what is expected, what society deems right and good, what's in their lane, they are praised. If you can identify those moments in the text, you can understand the cultural values of a society, even if you don't know anything about the actual historical information. It's all there for the discerning reader. These constraints and mobility, praise and blame contribute to a society's politics, the policies and cultural understandings that determine what people have access to in any society. Some of it seems fairly straightforward. If you're a newcomer to our countries, visa gives you mobility. The lack of visas constrain you by keeping you from jobs or healthcare or education and blame you with the term illegal. If you don't murder someone, you're pretty free. And if you do, you're constrained usually for life. But then you add in the praise and blame and things get complicated. If you're a person of color in a society that often blames you for the color of your skin, then if you are suspected of a crime, statistically it's much more likely for you to be jailed for decades, even if you're innocent. There are too many examples for me to get into now, but you can see how this chart helps us understand the way politics works in a complex society, right? As Christians, we approach Scripture with an added layer. We're not just trying to determine the cultural values of the text as if These are literary characters. We are reading to understand how God interacts in the world. So we're going to need to pay attention not just to the cultural values and politics of these stories, but what is revealed to us about God's priorities within them. Are you with me? Okay, let me tell you the story of Samuel chapters 1 through 3 using post-it notes on my chart. There was a woman named Hannah. Hannah was the second wife of Elkanah. Elkanah's first wife, Peninnah, had a bunch of kids. Lots of praise. Oh, here's Peninnah. Hannah had none. Because of that, in this culture, as in many cultures, Hannah was blamed. She was basically worthless. Her inability to provide her husband children meant she had little power and a great deal of societal guilt. Now, in this story, there's also a priest named Eli. Eli had a forever covenant with God. He presided over the temple at Shiloh, and he had two sons named Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas could basically do whatever they wanted, and they did. In 1 Samuel 2.12, we learn that Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Here's what was supposed to happen. When anyone offered a meat sacrifice to God, a servant would stick this fork In And then, 1 Samuel 2.14 says, the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. But that wasn't good enough for Eli's boys. They used the servants and told them to say, give your meat to the priests. They don't want it boiled. They want to roast it themselves. So either hand it over or we'll take it by force. That's scriptural. That's a direct quote. (laughs) Eli's sons used their mobility to constrain others. We're going to come back to them in a bit. So when Elkanah and his family go up to Shiloh to sacrifice in the temple like they did every year, Hannah goes to the temple to pray. She's so upset while she's praying, she looks incoherent. In fact, it looks to Eli, who is sitting in a chair outside of the temple like she's drunk. Now that's an interesting cultural tidbit for you. Eli had enough drunk people coming to the temple that he's like, here's another one, good grief, which tells you a lot about the moral state of Israel at the time. But Hannah corrects him. She's not drunk. She's a woman who is deeply troubled. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord," she says. Eli is moved by her tears and says to her in 1:18, "Go in peace; may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him." Eli, in a place of God-ordained power, speaks across these cultural boundaries to bless Hannah. And the story shifts. We get God entering into the narrative. 1 Samuel 1:19 says, "The Lord remembered her." I love that phrase. God did not forget this woman at the bottom of society. She eventually gives birth to a son, Named Samuel. What's fascinating to me is that within this story, Samuel's birth moves Hannah's place on my chart. It's a sweet story. This woman prays and she gets a baby and she does what society praises her for as a woman and a wife and everything's better. And then Hannah just absolutely upends the whole thing. Hannah does more than thank God for the gift of the son who moves her up in the world by being born. She dedicates him to the Lord. She nurses him, and when he's weaned, she gave him up to Eli to be a servant of God. And Samuel goes from being the beloved son of Hannah to being one of the most powerful men in the country. Within the story itself, in focusing on the heartache and prayer of a woman close to the bottom of her society, we get an extraordinary picture of the values of God as his prophet Samuel writes them. I love this because the most powerful man of God in a generation attributes his power to his mom, the least valued woman in her family. And he uses her voice to speak words that prophetically show the values that God will come back to time and time again in First and 2 Samuel. Immediately following Hannah's prayer, we learn that God breaks his covenant with Eli because of his evil sons. God, through the book of Samuel, rewrites the moral and cultural codes. He covers them up. Let's do the same using Hannah's prayer as a guide. For the purposes of my chart these will be the pink post-it notes in the power dynamics of god samuel's path to the top was smooth the boy samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the lord and with men much like god's son would several hundred years later it was who samuel was not his family line or his inheritance that god prized and god gave him great mobility and a phrase that remains one of my very favorites and something as a writer that i pray all the time God doesn't let Samuel's words fall to the ground. But it's Hannah's words that are the most prophetic in the beginning. When we first signed up for these sermons, as Jason mentioned earlier, I raised my hand to take on the story because it had been a long time since I'd read about Hannah. And most of what I remembered is that she wasn't able to have a baby. And then she prayed, and she did, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll take this one on for the preaching guild because I'm a mom who likes to preach. It made sense to me, right? What I found... When i dug into the text is exactly the story i love to tell the most a woman whose voice is strong and confident and powerful a prophetess who births a prophet someone who tells us in stark terms what god's values are let's be clear hannah was not voiceless the men in power just didn't hear her but god did because as god will reveal to us in a few chapters god looks not at external things but at the heart Hannah's hymn flips this chart. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, I'm gonna show you how God's values that we learn about in Hannah's prayer supersede all other priorities. Hannah prays, my heart exalts in the Lord, my strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord. No one besides you, there is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, you people who are at the top of the chart, who are praised and free. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shoal and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might does one prevail. The Lord, his adversaries shall be shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. For the rest of First and Second Samuel, we're gonna be hearing stories about political upheaval and societal shifts based on these values. In chapter three, the story begins in earnest. God calls Samuel himself going right past Eli and gives Samuel the awful task of telling Eli that God is breaking God's covenant with Eli's house. We learn quickly, this is a dangerous God who will not be constrained by the politics or values of humans. And we learn that God cares almost exclusively for those who are thinking for themselves and whose hearts are listening to God, no matter where they fit in society. In a few of these stories, the writers don't give us a lot of details, and we're supposed to trust that God knows the hearts of those involved. Some of us may be more inclined to do that than others. Some of us may find the characteristics we see in Samuel of God frustrating or doubt-producing, and that's fine. God can handle our questions. But what Ellen Davis, the theologian at Duke, who wrote a chapter of Samuel in her recent book, Opening Israel's Scriptures, points out is that there will be a number of ways in these two books in which people are desperately trying to discern the will of God. If you, like me, are constantly seeking clarity in this tumultuous time, Samuel tells us how to do that. Davis tells us that in Samuel, there are several unreliable means of discerning God's voice that are either rejected or judged to be doubtful by the writers. And we're going to get to those in later stories. But one of the most unreliable ways is the inherent wisdom of a leader. However, there are two things Davis calls effective channels for knowing the will of God, prophets and sacrifice and prayer. And in the entire book of Samuel, No one epitomizes those two things better than Hannah does in the beginning. The beginning of the book reveals God's values in their clearest and purest form, through the mouth of a woman who is at the bottom of her society, but the top of God's upside-down power structure. Our temptation is to look at this chart and ask ourselves, where do we fit? And I'm not gonna let us do that today. I'm gonna tell you, as we try to discern what in the world we're supposed to do in these chaotic times, the answer is gonna be found in aligning our values with God's. That's the how, devastatingly simple and almost, almost impossible all at once. What that looks like will look different for each of us. To figure out the answer for yourself, you can begin by listening to the prophets you trust who are speaking God's truth, whether they're speaking to thousands Are just speaking to you. And you can discern the answer to God's will in these times through sacrifice and prayer. I can't tell you what you'll have to sacrifice. For Hannah, it was her boy. For me, it's been far less. Those sacrifices have been some of the hardest things I've ever had to do. There will be many sacrifices to come. The question for those of us who enjoy great mobility and praise in these political times is not how do these upheavals affect us, but how do they impact those God deems the most valuable of all? The answer to that question will determine what we do. Like Hannah, we start with prayer and a desire to join a God who interferes and disrupts and listens and remembers and cares and moves. As I follow the prophets in my life, I continue to find the clarity I seek when I'm listening to, learning from, praying for, and demanding mobility for the forgotten and the blamed and the constrained. As Samuel shows us, in God's power dynamics, those are the people who should always be at the top and at the heart.